Good morning, everybody. Welcome. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can find your seats. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. They'll be in the Old Testament. You can kind of thumb through and find that. We've been in the book of Ecclesiastes the last several weeks. We'll be through it most of uh, the winter here uh, going into spring. And um, just to back up uh, and remember what our series is about, we've talked about the series being when all has been heard. Uh, the reason we've chosen that title is because it's what Solomon says. At the end of the book, after 11, almost 12 chapters of just misery, <laughs> of him talking about the futility of life, the meaninglessness of life, and trying to just kind of lay out the reality of what this life looks like and what it looks like to look towards another life and eternity, Solomon comes to the end of the book and he says the conclusion of the matter. And when he says matter, he's talking about everything he's discussed, which is like the futility of finances, the futility of relationships, the futility of health, the futility of wealth, all of it. He says when everything's been discussed, the conclusion of the matter is to fear God, that's to be in awe, in reverence, to know God and keep his commands because this is for all humans, all humanity. I mean, Solomon is, one of, is the wisest man in the world other than Jesus himself. He was given more wisdom than any other man supernaturally by God. He writes three books. He writes a book of passion, Song of Solomon. It's all about passion and youthful passion and a relationship. We know that that book really didn't work for him because he didn't just cherish that one wife. He needed 700, well, 699 more wives and 300 concubines. So passion didn't work. So then he writes the book of Proverbs, which is how to live a wise life so that everything turns out okay. And that didn't work. So now he's writing Ecclesiastes to say, well, I've lived with passion. I've done all the wise stuff you're supposed to do to have a good life, and I'm miserable. This isn't working. And that's Ecclesiastes. And Solomon writes that, and he lays it out, and he's looking and saying, look, I have been the wisest man. I've made all the mistakes. I've chased everything. We looked at the fact week one, he looks and he says, look, everything is futile. Week two, he, he looks and he says, I, I hated life. After I saw the futility of everything, I just hated life. Week three, he realized that even though he hates life, he can see that there's timing, there's, there's plans, there's things going on that God is maneuvering and making things happen, and there's a time to do things and a time not to do things. And last week, we looked at the fact that Solomon, again, looked around, he saw all the misery of the world, and he had to deal with it again, and arrived at the conclusion to be in awe of God, and that God has put eternity in the hearts of man. And so that's where we find ourselves this morning, in chapter 5. And at the end of chapter 5, we'll see in a minute, Solomon writes, the joy of his heart. The joy of his heart. Let me ask you this morning. What is the joy of your heart? Don't say it out loud, just think. And when I say heart, I don't mean a thing that's thumping in your chest. Whenever you read the word heart in Scripture, it's talking about the soul, the inner. What, what is at the core of your heart? Because Solomon's writing Ecclesiastes because he's realizing that everything he chased in life left him with an empty heart. And he's wrestling with that. And so Solomon is looking and he's asking, you'll see at the end of this book, what's the joy of your heart? Let me ask you this. What would people say brings you joy in your heart? 
If you asked your friends and your family and those closest to you, your roommate, your wife, your kids, what is it that brings your dad, your mom, your friend, your brother, your sister joy in their heart? What would they answer? When IU wins? When Purdue wins? When Purdue loses? Because you're an IU fan, you just want Purdue to lose all the time or the other way around? When your finances are good? When you still have room on your credit card to charge more? Like, like, what is it that when you're healthy, when, when you're not overweight, when you have what you want in the fridge, not what you have in the fridge? <laughs> like, what is it that your friends would say, that, I see Matt have joy when? Because, see, Solomon is trying to get at the fact that if the joy of your heart is not God himself and in all of him, and the joy of your heart is not realizing that he has given us the beauty of his word to know exactly what life is about and what we need to do, Solomon is saying, look, I'm the wisest man in the world. You're going to be miserable. Because life doesn't turn out well. Life always turns out badly. We all die. That's not a good thing. But it's a part of the curse that we're under. And so Solomon is writing, and and he's trying to get people to see what the purpose of joy, the purpose of life really is. Do you realize that we have this joy and happiness drug in us called dopamine? Scientists have been studying it a lot in the last probably 20 to 30 years. But But dopamine is the thing that makes you like hyped up and happy and gets you going. And some people have too high of dopamine levels. You know those people? Some people have too low of dopamine levels. You know those people too. Quit looking around, you judgers. (laughs) Like, but here's the deal with dopamine, okay? Dopamine is something that drugs release. Like cocaine opens the dopamine, opens the synapses so dopamine can flow in. But there's other things. Food causes a dopamine hit. It's the joy drug that God designed and created. But here's what scientists have discovered over the last several years, recent years, about dopamine. Only about 10% of the dopamine hit is released when you actually experience the thing. When you actually have sex, or you actually take the drug, or you actually ingest the food. Only about 10% of the dopamine hits then. 90% of your dopamine hit is being released before you get to the hit. It's the anticipation that starts to pour the dopamine and open up the the neurological synapses so that you're ready to take the hit. That can be broken in some people because of biological issues and sicknesses and viruses and all kinds of stuff. But that's the science behind it. So here's the deal. When we look this morning and look at chapter 5, you've got to realize that what Solomon is realizing is that it's the anticipation that is really the thing we've got to change. Because see, if you're anticipating, oh, following God's so hard, his word is just so convicting and awful, I don't know how I'm at... Like if that's your anticipation then when the hit happens, there's no dopamine. And you're like, ooh, let's do something different. Like we have to retrain ourselves in so many ways to anticipate and find joy in the hard things. 
And that's what Scripture's all about. Scripture's all about saying, look, I want you to find the hit. I want you to find joy even in the things that are awful, that you don't understand, that you're going through, that are miserable. You've got to come to a place where you say, God, I'm not trusting my wealth. I'm not trusting my wife. I'm not trusting anything else. I'm trusting in you, and that's all I have. And let me tell you, if you've never been there, I promise you, you will be there someday. I promise And you've got to get ready for that moment because it's going to come. And the reason God takes you there is the same reason he took Solomon there, because he loves you. And he loves your wife. And he loves your kids. And he loves your friends. And he loves your family because he is trying to get them to see that if they keep chasing the things they're chasing, it's going to end in misery. And there is only one God and one being worth chasing and giving your life to. And no matter what life throws at you, you got to be in awe of him and trust what he says. Even when it's like, why am I doing this? I'm not getting a hit. And God says, just keep trusting me. Someday you're going to have the ultimate dopamine hit when you hit heaven and you stand before him and go, oh, it was so worth it. And our world pushes back against that. Our world is all completely designed to give you dopamine hits now. And we will even push people to get hits of dopamine. We will. We can't stand to see people sad or miserable. Got to cheer them up. Got to make them better. Why? Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet because he was just miserable all the time. Because he knew what was coming for God's people and he knew they wouldn't listen. And he was miserable. Because he's like, I see this coming. And they're not ready. So let's dive in. Ecclesiastes 5.20, I'm going to give the spoiler, says this. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. The Bible says that God allows us to stay occupied with whatever we seek, whatever we find joy in. That God's going to allow us to do that. He's going to expose our heart and show us that, hey, I'm allowing you to be occupied. But there's going to come a day when you're going to have to give an account for what occupied you. He goes on. Here's what Jesus said in in Matthew. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Whatever that thing that is your joy and your treasure, your heart's going to be there. Then he says, goes down further in Matthew later in the book. 22, 36, he says, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? In other words, what's going to give me the greatest hit? It's going to make me know I've got it all good. I'm good with God. And Jesus answers the oldest answer there is. This is the Shema out of Deuteronomy when God is giving these initial law in the Old Testament. Jesus repeats the Shema of like thousands of years ago that God gave his people. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. In other words, train your body to look forward to the things of God so that your heart, your soul, and your mind are looking for that. Then he says, this is the greatest and most important commandment. However, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Everything hinges, all the joy, all the happiness, everything life hinges on these two things. That's what Solomon said, be in awe of God and obey his commands. Why do we have commands? So we get in good with God? No, we're not good with God unless God makes us good with him through his son and through his sacrifice. The commands are there to make us right with one another. That's the commands of the Old Testament. And that's why we don't like them. 
It's why we want to throw out the Old Testament and forget about it because it's the book that tells us how we should treat one another and how we should do things. And we're like, oh, I don't want anything to do with that. And Jesus says, no, look, everything in the Bible, everything that's ever been said, all that has been heard that you think will bring you joy hinges on the reality of the finding joy in your heart and just loving God with everything you've got. And some of you don't have a lot right now. Some of you, your heart, your soul, your mind is weak. It's beaten. It's hurting. And God says, that's okay. Give me what you got. I'll take it. Whatever you're willing to just say, here I am. He'll take it. And then he goes on and he says, and I can't love people very well because I don't have much to do. Yeah, you can. You can pray for them. You can give anything you've got to love people. You can look at someone and say, I love you. And sometimes that's the greatest thing you can hear from someone. He goes on, James says this, or Jeremiah says this about the heart. You know, why, why do we have this problem with our heart? Jeremiah says it. He says, the heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? Who can understand it? Like, can you? Can I? He says, I test the heart. To give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. See, here's our problem. We all think we've got a great heart. And God is a great physician, and he looks at us and he says, no, you have, do not have a great heart. And you can't fix your heart. You need a transplant. Like your heart's damaged, it's broken, there's no hope for it. We need a heart transplant. And we are like, no, 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 I can make it better. I can eat the right thing. No, your heart's done. And see, that's what God has said. Now, if a doctor tells us that, we're like, sure, let's find a transplant. Let's find someone who has a good heart, who has died and donated it so that we can live. That's the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave his life so we didn't have to. He gives us a new spiritual heart so we can see spiritual things, so we can live a new life. And just like you would be so grateful to the person who gave you their heart and to their family who donated that, Man, how much more grateful for eternity and the spiritual eyes and spiritual things. And Jeremiah says, look, your heart is incurable. A doctor and others have to save you. You can't make your own heart. You can't fix your own heart. It's got to be something outside of you. And again, we accept that just fine in medicine. But when God says it, we're like, oh, I'll show you. And then we do exactly what Jeremiah says. God says, fine, you want to do that? I'll test you. Let's test this. Let's go all the way and test where your heart really is. When I start taking things from you, when I start really giving you the test that I, we looked at last week, Job had. And he says, I'll give you according to your way. It's interesting because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So if you say Jesus is my way, then God says you pass the test. But if you say, no, I'm going to do my way, then God says, okay, then I'll judge you for what your actions deserve if you decide that Jesus is the way the truth and the life then God will judge you according to that decision and he will judge you someday for the works you've done and reward you but there's no punishment the punishment's gone it's been put on Christ he's given you everything see Jeremiah didn't know all that Jeremiah is prophesying the future that's coming Solomon didn't know all these things that's why he's wrestling with it Solomon is looking forward to the day when God will fix these things and he's trying to trust him in the midst of it because it doesn't look like God's fixing it now we have the New Testament we are without excuse look at what Psalm says David writes this in the Psalms he writes has he God not dealt with us as our sins 
deserve or repaid us according to our offenses. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. Who say, I can't save myself. I can't do enough works to outweigh my bads. God, if you don't save me, I'm hopeless. What do you want me to do? See, that's looking forward to when God will save you. Everyone in the Old Testament looked forward to the day when the Messiah would come and pay the price and save them. We look back to the day when the Messiah came, paid the price to save us, and all of human history looks forward to the ultimate day when Jesus will come back to save humanity and make a new heaven and new earth and new bodies. That's the gospel. And he looks and he says, look, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. It doesn't say he's removed all of our problems. It doesn't say he's removed all of our sickness. It says he's removed the stupid transgressions that have been done against us and that we've done against others. He goes on and says, As a father has compassion on his children, So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Do you believe that there's a God that has compassion? Because this was written in the Old Testament before Jesus came around. And we saw the real compassionate Jesus, right? The Old Testament God, he was mean, right? Judgmental, harsh. It's not what David believed. It's not what Jeremiah believed. It's not what anybody in the Old Testament believed. They all believed that God was compassionate and merciful. The difference They actually believe they deserved everything they got because of how stupid they were, and we don't believe that anymore. And it's a problem. It means we don't fear him. We fear more being embarrassed, not being popular, our finances being a mess. We we fear more people finding out the truth about us than fearing God and what he believes and what he thinks about us. Because he says he loves us and that he's a father and he has compassion if we'll just come to him. Ecclesiastes 3.11, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, said he has made everything appropriate in his time. He has also put eternity in their hearts. But man cannot discover the work God has done from the beginning to end. Jump to 14, it says, I know that all God does will last forever. There's no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in awe of him. That's the point. It's the point of all scripture, that we will be in awe of God, that we will be getting ourselves ready for the awe of God, that we'll be practicing being in awe of God so that when he comes back someday or when he calls us home to be with him someday, we are in awe. We're not like, oh, wow, I'm surprised. We'll be like, no, this is exactly what I was looking for. It's going to be the ultimate dopamine hit. Like, I've been waiting for this my whole life. It goes on in 5.1. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Better to draw near in obedience than to offer the sacrifice as fools do, for they ignorantly do wrong. You see, we think that more sacrifice, and we looked at this last week, just at the very end of the message, we think more sacrifice gets us in good with God. We looked at this last week. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the opposite. God doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires a broken and contrite heart. And yet when people have broken and contrite hearts, we try to cheer them up with sacrifices. It's not wrong to serve them and love them and pray for them. But sometimes it's good to to walk with people and just be in their brokenness. And just be like, you're broken. I love you. I got nothing else. Like, that's it. I don't have, my job isn't to cheer you up. It's not to get you to, like, you're just, it's hard. 
And I'm probably going to be there someday too if I have been before. And he says, look at this. He says, what they do is they offer these sacrifices as fools. He says, draw near. He says, to the house of God. Let me ask you a question. Just real quick. He says the house of God there. This is a question that people wrestle with and have wrestled with. What is a church? Don't answer out loud. Most people say wherever two or more are gathered, God's there. That's church. Wrong. That is not a church. That is not the New Testament definition of a church. A New Testament definition of a church is a leader, pastors, shepherds, deacons, people, like, gathered to do certain things, to worship, to hold one another accountable. Like when two Christians come together, yes, God's there, but it's not church. That's not the New Testament definition. But when we look at something like this, we keep doing what's foolish. We don't guard our steps. We don't go to the house of God because we're like, well, I'm the house of God, and they're the house of God. And so the problem with that is there's no accountability. That's where Solomon's been living. Solomon has been the king of an empire with no accountability. And he's miserable. Miserable. Because he hasn't guarded his steps as he's gone to the house of God. He's just gone through the motions of going to church, going to temple. All the while he's built altars and idolatry all over the empire for all of his 700 wives he married. Maybe not all, but a lot. To keep them all happy and to keep the peace. He's got all this idolatry and mess and he's still just going to church like it's no big deal. And he wonders why he's miserable. Well, he comes to the end of his life because he wrote this book at the end and realizes that. Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. He says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's sanctuary and the spirit of God lives in you? Okay, you read that because we live in America and we live in Western culture. And when you read the word you, you thought of yourself. And that is not what Paul is writing. When Paul says you and he's speaking to an entire church in Corinth, who's the you? The whole church. See, we read that verse and we go, I'm the sanctuary, me, I'm awesome. No, you're a part of the body being built. And we're all different parts of the body and we have to come together to build something. That that's the point. We come under one another's authority, both mutually and then because of leadership. This is what a church is. So he's saying, don't you yourselves know that you're God's sanctuary? God wants to dwell with you as a church, and that the Spirit of God lives in all of you, like together. And then he says, don't you know that your body, he's talking about the body, the church, is a sanctuary, and our individual bodies that connect. And if we bring a sick body into the rest of the bodies, we make everybody else sick, spiritually speaking. Not if you're actually ill, okay? I mean, you could make people physically sick too, but hey, we're going to die anyway, and we're going to go to heaven, so, oh well. Okay, so he goes on, he says, don't you know, and then look at this, Your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You're not your own. See that? You belong to one another, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, the church. Yes, your individual body, but your individual body is nothing without the body of Christ. And that's what Paul is writing because the Corinthian church is being like Solomon. They're chasing all the idols. They're doing everything like Solomon. They got sexual immorality in the church. They think wealth is more important and so they're giving special favoritism to people. It's all the stuff Solomon's like, this is all futile and meaningless. And Paul's like, yeah, you first, you Corinthian church, you're doing all those things. 
He goes on, he says this. John says this. And it's actually Jesus speaking. He says, an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. You see, we like the spirit and we like the truth, but bringing them together is really messy. Right? I just want to walk in the spirit. Well, you can't walk in the spirit if you don't have truth because the spirit is the spirit of truth. That's what he's called. So if you don't know the truth, then how do you know you're walking in the spirit? And if you only walk in the spirit and you're not trusting God and you're not asking his opinion, you're not like allowing others to speak into your life, then you're not following the truth because the truth leads you back to the spirit. See how that works? And God has put the spirit in us because of what Jesus has done. Before the spirit in Solomon's day was in a temple, closed off. In our day, God says, no, no, I've ripped the curtain. I've opened the temple so that I can fellowship with you. And he says, we must worship. If you're going to find true joy in your heart, you've got to start practicing worshiping him in truth and in spirit. And let me tell you, sometimes your spirit is not going to worship and all you have is the truth. And sometimes, sometimes your spirit's all about worship and it's no truth and you got to be confronted and dealt with because you're not living in the truth. And we need both. Hebrews says this, therefore, look at this. Therefore, let us approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. We just read in Ecclesiastes 3 where Solomon says there's a proper time for everything. Do you understand that when Paul is writing this, likely Paul, but when the author of Hebrews is writing this, he says, therefore let us approach the throne of judgment? Grace. You see, you can't approach the throne of God if you're under judgment. You're done. There's no approaching. You're dead. You can only approach the throne if you're under the grace of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And God wants you to know with absolute certainty and clarity that he wants you to approach. Solomon wrote, draw near. When you draw near, be, like guard your heart when you draw near. Like God says, draw near, and then he provides the way for us to draw near so he doesn't have to destroy us in our sin, in judgment. And he says, approach my grace. And if we're approaching the throne, what are we looking for? Does it say, so that you may receive a new car, better house, uh, so that you may receive spouse, that's a good one, or get rid of a spouse, isn't another one, new spouse. People who understand what it means to approach God and be in awe of him and obey him, approach him and are like, I got nothing. I got, I got nothing to offer. I am just desperate for your mercy and grace because I got nothing. That's how we approach him. And Solomon is just now figuring this out after 60 years of living a life where he's approached God with the greatest temple ever built, decked out gold walls in the temple. I mean, he built the most elaborate system of worship ever designed in the history of man. And Solomon is coming down to the place where he's like, whoa, that, what was I thinking? It's just simply approaching and receiving the mercy and grace that we can't get any other way. And I don't assume God's mercy and grace when I approach. I assume all reverence 
reverence. Oh, and then God says, no, 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 draw near. I'm your father. Come close. I've forgiven you because of my son. It's so beautiful. He goes on and he says, Ecclesiastes, do not be hasty to speak. Do not be impulsive to make a speech before God. God is in heaven. You're on earth. So let your words be few. For dreams result from much work and a fool's voice from many words. You want to see if you truly have the joy of the Lord in your heart? Um, how much do you run your mouth? Because if you truly have the joy of the Lord in your heart, there is a peace, there is a joy that comes out. And it's not telling God what he should do because that's the hasty speech. God, you do this and you do that and you better do this. It's like, how do you even know what God wants to do? You know where you're at? Earth. You know what you can see? Right here. You know what the Chinese can see? Our whole country. Why? Because they're up there, or they were. You see what I'm saying? Like, you got to get a different view. If you're above everything, you can see. Like, the, duh. And so, literally, Solomon's like, you can't see it. You don't have a good vantage point. You don't see all that God's doing. You don't understand all he's trying to do. You only see this. And it's real. What's around you is like, yeah, it's right in front of me. Here it is. You got to deal with it. Exactly. Which is why don't be too hasty to tell God what to do around you and how he should do it. Because you have no idea what's going on over there. Instead, just approach and ask for his mercy and grace as you go through this thing. But we want to make so many demands on God. And we're even, this is the worst part. The church today actually teaches us to do this. It teaches us to tell God what to do and to make demands from him. Now, does God want us to present our requests? Absolutely. But we should guard our heart and approach carefully. We should check our heart and say, God, is that really what? Look, you need to check your heart. Before you just, here God, you do this and you do that. And so many people just, they have oral diarrhea with God. They're sick. They need to take some Pepto. You know what I mean? Like stop. And you need to speak the truth. He says dreams result from much work. We know this to be true, don't we? People who really follow their dreams actually commit to following it becomes the joy of their heart and the dominant thing in their life and we look at those people and we're like wow that's amazing because you don't see it very often most people say they have a dream and then they sit on the couch and they dream of having a dream that's not a dream <laughs> that's foolish that's what Solomon says look at what James says about our tongue he says so too Though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a, word of a world of unrighteousness, is placed among the parts of our bodies. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Well, that's pretty, wow. Then he goes on, he says, Every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. In other words, only God can tame the tongue you got to fear him. you got to know what he says, not what you say. And then he says, it is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. 
And Solomon's realizing this. Solomon says, yeah, it shouldn't be this way. This isn't the way we should be acting. He goes on to say in verse 4, chapter 5, you're running your mouth, he says, but here's the deal. When you make a vow to God, when you tell God and you say, God, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that, and don't delay in fulfilling it because he does not delight in fools. Fulfill what you vow. Better that you do not vow than you vow and do not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth bring guilt on you. And do not say in the presence of the messenger that it was a mistake. Oops. No. Why should God be angry with your words and destroy the work of your hands? God says if your words and your hands don't match, I'm going to come against that. Because I love you and I love other people and I want them to see the truth about me. And I'm going to push back against that. And it may not be it happens instantly. It may be that it comes crashing down 30 years later. And it's evident to all what was built. And all of a sudden it crumbles and you're like, oh, wow. Right? That's exactly what Solomon's dealing with. He has built something his whole life. He has built this empire. He has built all of these things. And he's coming down and he's realizing, I'm watching God And he's telling me he's going to destroy all the work of my hands because of my idolatry, because I don't fear him, and because I've been looking for the wrong things. He realizes it. He knows it. And he lays this out. You see, God wants you to admit your mistakes and still fulfill your vow. That's faith. You see, not do it in yourself and what you're going to get, but like admit your mistake, admit you were wrong, I did it, and then go back and say, now how do I fulfill the vow I made? What does it look like to to own that, to go back and deal with it? Not just say, oh, God's forgiven me. I just move on. No, there are people who don't know God. There are people who have been hurt that need to be asked forgiveness from. You know what? They probably will just take your offer and be like, yeah, you better be sorry and move on. Because that's the typical response of human beings. But you're not trying to please them. You're not trying to get a sorry out of them. You're not trying to get them to, no, you're just doing your part before God Almighty at your failure. And he even says better not to vow than not fulfill it. Better just to say, I don't know what God wants me to do. I'm just waiting. You know, there's another person who said exactly this, another really wise person. His name was Jesus. In Matthew, he said, again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, you must not break your oaths or your vows. But you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. See, we love to make emotional things. I double, oh, I so double dog dare you. Oh, I I pinky swear. Oh, I I promise above promise on my mother's grave. God's like, what? What's your mother's grave? She's dead. What's the matter? Like, they could go dig it up? Like, they don't want anything in there. Like, we just say the dumbest things to try to, like, prove our our dedication. Jesus says this. Neither should you swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black. But let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You don't fulfill your vow, it's evil. You know what you do? You go to God and you say, hey, I'm coming to your throne. I'm approaching your throne of mercy and grace because I'm evil. Help. You'll have mercy and grace on me, right? Because I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. Yeah. And then God looks at you and says, okay, now let's go back and deal with that. Let's have you go back and give grace and mercy to others. Be a part of my plan. Isn't this going to be great? And you're like, no, it's terrifying. 
He's like, no, I, I know it's terrifying. They crucified me when I tried to give great mercy and grace, and I told you that's probably going to happen to you. So welcome to the family. This is how it works. And that's exactly what Jesus, just let your yes be yes and your no be no, and anything beyond that, admit that it was evil. Just look at people and be like, I'm so, as evil. I said it because I was trying to impress you, and I wanted you to feel good, and then I didn't follow through. That's on me. It's just evil. I'm just evil, but I'm thankful there's a Jesus who saves me and allows me to have mercy and grace, and I hope you know him because you're going to need it too. And that's where you find your joy, not in how you followed everything right and kept all your vows. That's what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees were like, we've kept all of our vows. And Jesus is like, no, you have not. You've only kept the vows because it works for you, because it's, it's beneficial for your pocketbook. You haven't kept them because you're actually in awe of God and you love what he has to say and you love giving to the people and being their shepherd. That's, that's not why you've done this. Ecclesiastes goes on, he says, For many dreams bring futility, so do many words. Therefore, just fear God. Quit talking about your dreams. Quit talking about what you're going to do, not going to do, and this and that. Just stop. Just fear God. Talk about his dreams. Heaven. Right relationships. Loving him. Talk about these dreams. And here, there's lots of dreams and awesome things. Talk about those. Like, it's like everybody has to have a new word from God. I've got to have a, something new and fresh. I don't need anything new and fresh because I have way too much I don't know. I don't need, an, I don't need anything new because I am overwhelmed with this. I, I don't need a new thing. I just need the thing, which is God himself revealed in his word. And his spirit will always lead me back to this, the truth. And the truth will always lead me to a spirit that surrenders my life to whatever God has for me. That's the point. That's exactly what God is saying. And we run around again. This is one of the most misused verses in all of Scripture. And it's always quoted in the King James. Because the King James is the worst of all the translations. But it's the best of the translations for this verse to get what we want. Okay? Here it is. Where there is no vision, the people perish. We have a vision to build a mega campus. 30 acres and a $4 million facility, and we just all need you to take out second mortgages on your homes, and we're going to build this thing for God. Because God wants us to be in debt. He changed his mind when he said, don't be in debt. He changed his mind. So this is what we need to do. And, it's, and, and, and listen, this is my vision for you. Because if, I, if we don't do this, people in Bloomington are going to perish. If we don't build this huge building, I mean, people are going to perish in Bloomington. We're not going to be able to put people in the church, and they're going to perish without coming to church. No. Look at what the next verse says. The second part of this that nobody ever quotes. But he that keepeth the law, happy is he. You want true happiness? Don't look for a vision. Don't talk. Like, just obey God. Because he's done so much for you and you love him. Now, look at the better translation. Here's the better translation of Proverbs. It goes like this. Without revelation... People run wild, but one who listens to instruction will be happy. You say, well, that doesn't even say the same thing. Actually, it does. It's just we like to find the versions we like and twist them to fit what we already wanted to believe instead of taking all the Greek and all the Hebrew and looking at it and saying, what does this really mean? I just can't come up with, without revelation... People run wild. Yep, I do. 
Without this, I run wild. I do whatever I want to do in a day if I don't read this. I do. I'm like, what do I want to do today, self? I don't know. Let's not read that. Let's just do what we want to do today. Let's not ask God. Let's, he's just blessed me to do whatever I want today. And then he says, people will, but if you listen to instruction, you're going to find joy. Why? Because God will tell you how he wants to be loved. And people will tell you how they want to be loved. And you don't want to love them that way. You're like, I don't want to love you by doing the dishes because I don't like doing the dishes. How about I love you a different way? And they're like, no, I just want you to do the dishes. Can we make a deal? You know, you do the dishes, I'll do like three other things. Just do the dishes, right? Like this is the argument we have. It's like if you truly want to find joy, find joy in just giving whatever you've got, and sometimes it isn't much, and say, God, here's what I got today. Here's, and just find joy in him. Find joy in his revelation and find joy in the fact that I'm not running wild. If you're not running wild, praise God. Sick people don't run wild. Have you ever noticed that? They're pretty still. Find joy sometimes in being sick because it's like, well, I can't get in much trouble here. It goes on in Acts. This is the first message that Peter preaches after the Spirit has filled him up, and now he understands the truth of the Old Testament in its entirety. Peter goes on this rant, laying out the whole Old Testament, all of it. He like gives the whole Old Testament to the Jewish people that are in Jerusalem that he's preaching to. Look at what happens. It says, when they heard this, they came under deep convictions and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what must we do? Repent. Peter said to them, and be baptized, each of you, in the name of, the Jesus, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Pretty simple. Just say, I'm going the wrong direction. That's what repentance means. Not a good way. I'm turning to God. I'm turning to Jesus. That's it. Repent, and then do an action to kind of declare your repentance to others. Be like, I'm going this way. Now I'm going to be physically baptized in front of people so you can hold me accountable that I got baptized. It wasn't a well, I prayed to receive Jesus, and tomorrow I'm like, well, I said I did, but I didn't. No, it's like we saw you get baptized. You went before people and said, I'm getting baptized to declare to the world I'm, under, I'm dying under the water, coming back, I'm living a new life. That's what baptism is, right? I'm being washed clean so that I can be made new. That's baptism. Now, does baptism save you? No, baptism doesn't save you. Repentance does. Being in awe of God, like these people were, they're in awe of God. They're like, if that's God, what do we do? And Peter's like, just change your mind. Just, just change your mind about everything. Quit chasing what you want and chase him. Repent, turn the other way. And then he, say, and he says, if you do that, you're going to get forgiveness and you're going to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God's not trying to hold out on you. It's not like, well, do this. Well, and then there's these two other things I didn't tell you about. You know, you also have to recognize the prophet and the new Bible and scriptures we have. Like, you got to, there's all this other stuff you got to, no. He goes on, he says, look at this. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off. That's us. As many as the Lord will call. And with many other words, Peter testified strongly, urging them, saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes because he can't figure out how to be saved from the corruption that he's made. 
He's looking around at all the futility and the mess, and he's like, how do I save myself? How do I save my, I've tried everything to save my people. I've invited every God. I've made every peace treaty I can make. I've done everything I can to try to bring peace into my life, and I'm miserable. Peter just says, just be saved from this corrupt generation. Let me ask you, do you want to be saved from this corrupt generation, or do you want to be like this corrupt generation? Solomon tried to be like the corrupt generation of his day. He married 700 women and made peace treaties and idolatry all over his nation to try to be like them. And he ended up miserable. And he said with many other words, we're not supposed to not testify. We're supposed to testify. God says you can speak as many words to other people about him as you want. He just says be careful with your words and your vows to him. You can give glory to other people about God. That's what Peter's doing. He's giving all the words. And he's saying, look, be saved. Let me ask you, is that your dream? Is that your joy to watch your life being saved from corruption? Do you take joy in that? Do you take joy that that's happening in your life? Do you take joy that God's whittling all the corruption out of your life so all you have left is him? I don't. I struggle with that. I wrestle with that. I don't see it as good. I don't see it as the plan. And yet it's the plan. Be saved from this mess. And Solomon is writing, literally saying, I don't know who's going to save me from this mess. And then he's like, oh yeah, God can. But can he really? But, oh, and he's, he's wrestling with this. And what does it look like to gauge whether you're really being corrupted by this generation or saved from it? I'm glad you asked. Because Acts says this. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex. They broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and humble attitude, joyful, joyful hearts, praising God and living and having favor with all the people. And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. You want to see if you're being saved from this corrupt generation? Does your life look that way? Is that what you long for? Maybe you can't do this. We have people in our church that can't come every Sunday because of health issues, because of problems. Do you visit them? Do you call them? Do you encourage them? Not because you want to cheer them up and fix them, but just because you know that they're struggling and they're finding their joy in Christ and that's all they got. And you want to just tell them, keep doing it. You're being an example to me. You're showing me and how many churches would be willing to do this? To care for hurting people's needs? Is the joy of your heart God regardless of the results? Because it was in the early church. Ecclesiastes says, if you see oppression of the poor, perversion of justice and righteousness in the province, don't be astonished at the situation because one official protects another official and higher officials protect them. The profit from the land is taken by all. The king is served by the field. Welcome to USA. Like why, why are we surprised? I can't believe our government's so corrupt. Well, that was written a few thousand years ago. It hasn't changed. And if you think if you had control of the government, you wouldn't corrupt it, that's why Solomon's writing Ecclesiastes, because he had all control of the government, and he realized, I've corrupted all of it. 
Because I thought I could fix it and do the right thing because I had supernatural wisdom. And my supernatural wisdom was going to fix everything. And he comes into his life and he's like, I just made everything worse. Because I didn't trust God. I didn't trust and be in awe of him. I was just trusting in the earthly wisdom I had to maneuver things as they needed to be. You see, when you start fearing God, you'll see people as God does, including the rulers and authorities. You won't be surprised. You'll be like, I'm amazed it's not worse. Every day I wake up, I'm like, I'm amazed we're still here. I'm amazed God has not just unleashed the heavens on us. Like, I am amazed I have another day to breathe. Every day I've learned over the last several years, when I wake up every morning, I just say to God, God, thank you for new mercies today because I don't deserve to be here. Every morning I say that when I get out of bed. Lord, thank you that I have new, you've you've made me alive today and that's enough. I'm coming to your throne, mercy and grace. Like, I'm starting over today, thank you. I'd like to be in heaven, but I'm here, so thank you for your mercy to be here. I have to tell myself that every day. Matthew says this, Jesus says, You'll always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. By pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she has prepared me for burial. This woman used her dowry and poured it over Jesus. Right? He says, I assure you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told in memory of her. There it is. I just told you. Because Jesus told me to tell you about her. There you go. Okay? In memory of her. Like, she, she takes everything she, this was her dowry. She is basically saying, I'm going to be single the rest of, I'm, I'm, you're it. I'm, I'm, I'm literally covering you with everything I have and everything I have left. It's all yours because I truly believe that you are the Messiah. And she had no idea she was preparing him for burial. And you see, here's the test of the joy of the heart. This woman found joy in her heart to do that for her Savior. You want to know who didn't find joy in their heart because Jesus didn't meet their expectations? Glad you asked. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, the man called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? So they weighed out 30 pieces of silver for him. When you come to the end of your life, you're either going to be this woman or Judas. There's no in-between. There's no in-between. I don't want any of you to be Judas. I don't want any of you to live with the weight of what you've done. Jesus says to come to the throne boldly to receive mercy and grace. He isn't lying. Like That's what we do. And he says, why? Because I don't want you to kill yourself like Judas does or want to kill yourself like Solomon because that's where we'll all end up if you don't have the hope I'm telling you. And this woman was like, I'm willing to kill my future. I'm willing to give everything of my future. This is my dowry. This is everything. I'm willing to give it all up just so you can smell good and look good, Jesus. Just so you can be covered. You're everything to me. Goes on and says this. Then the mother of Zebedee and two sons, this is Jesus again, struggling with what Solomon just wrote about the perversion and all the rulers and authorities. The two, mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. You know, we think we had snowplow, snowplow parents today, right? Like these moms are going to plow the way for their kids. Nothing new. Nothing new under the sun, right? Zebedee's moms are like, my boys have been following you and I've been raising them and now it's time for you to step up. And basically she says, I want my two boys to be first in your kingdom. 
because they are the sons of thunder. They're pretty powerful dudes. They've done good. My boys are good little boys. You need to bless them. You need, that needs to turn out well for my little boys. Sound familiar? I mean, people call IU and like tell IU to do this. Like literally, like I want to talk to the president of the university. What? My son didn't get in. Why? Because he didn't have the right GPA. Duh. Like wait, work harder. Goodbye. Like what? He goes on. He says, look. But Jesus called them over and said, calls everybody over. Hey, this mom just asked me, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles dominate them and the men of high position exercise authority over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant or slave. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That is not the answer she was looking for. And if IU said that answer to a mom calling on, well, here at IU, we're just looking for students to come, and we're not here to serve them. They're here to serve us. Thank you. Pay your bill, and we'll give you an education. Be like, I'm not going there. I'm going to Purdue. I'm going someplace else. Because we can't stand that answer, which is what Solomon's discovering. He's like, I'm constantly trying to get and change. I'm not trusting the Lord. He goes on, he says, the one who loves money is never satisfied. So he says, you know, you got all these rulers and you blame all the rulers. Oh, hold on. You're just as guilty because you love your, your money. You love your wealth. You love your security and comfort. Is never satisfied with money. And whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. When good things increase, the ones who consume them multiply. We even call our entire economy today in the United States a consumer economy. Goes on and he says, look, what then is the profit to the owner except to gaze at them with his eyes? The sleep of the worker is sweet whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich permits him no sleep. When Solomon wrote Ecclesiastes, do you think he was sleeping well? When he's writing the futility, I think he was up all night. I think he was wrestling with life. I think it was difficult. The, see, wealth causes us to start to worry that we're going to lose it, that we're not going to make more. We're not going to be able to do more. Being poor is pretty simple. I have to get up today and figure out how I'm going to feed myself. Yay, I fed myself today. Okay, tomorrow, get up, feed myself. Like it, It's not complicated to be poor. It's really simple. We complicate it when it's like, well, I got to get to a certain level. And we start... Now, is wealth bad? No, God gives wealth. He lo- he, he's the one who makes wealth so he can use and impact people. Like, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying be careful where your heart is. Do you find joy in making that next buck? Do you find joy in now I got the education that's going to give me the wealth? Like, if that's where you're at, you're in a bad place. You're not going to sleep well. How about you just kind of get your life in control? Look at what Jesus says. He says, no household slave can be the slave of two masters. He'll either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and mammon, or money, wealth. The Pharisees, who are lovers of money, look at this, were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. Have you ever talked to somebody who is a Dave Ramsey evangelist? I mean a Dave Ramsey evangelist. Like, you got to do Dave. Because it's Ramsey's solutions. Like, like, not the Bible. They don't bring up the Bible verses. They bring up what Dave says. I heard on the Dave says, and Dave, and Dave, and Dave. Um, 
You can't be both. The Pharisees were listening to all these things and scoffing. And you know what's amazing to me when you run into Dave Ramsey's evangelists? When you tell them you do it differently because you feel led by God to do it differently and it's not against Scripture, they will scoff you every time. And Dave on the radio, I don't know his heart before God. I'm not judging him, but he is a scoffer a lot of people. Be careful that you don't end up with your wealth and your plan and I got it all right and look it's worthy because God is going to humble you and he says the fall will be great when he does now do we are we wise with money do we stay yeah we do all the things the Bible says to do do we invest because we know a rainy day is going to come and we shouldn't just yeah we do all of those things because God says they're wise to do it's not that it's be careful because the Pharisees showed that what they really loved by what they scoffed. Jesus scoffed Satan. He called these Pharisees, you are sons of your father, the devil, and you are vipers. That's scoffing. But he wasn't scoffing them as men. He was scoffing Satan in them. He goes on and he says, you are the ones who justify yourself in the sight of others. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly admired by people is revolting in God's sight. Let me ask you, are you okay with being revolting? Or are you more concerned about being highly admired? Because if you go after the things of God, I promise you, you're going to be revolted. If Solomon would have had time to change the things in his empire like his great-great-grandson, I think it was great-great, Josiah does, People would have hated Solomon because he would have started tearing down all the altars. All the treaties would have gotten broken. He would have had to repent from all the bad treaties he made. It would have gone badly and he would have been revolting. He goes on and he says, Timothy, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. By craving it, some have wandered away from the faith, pierced themselves with many pains. Second Timothy, but know this, difficult times will come in the last days. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, without love for what is good. Traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding on to a form of godliness, that's what Solomon had, but denying God's power and authority over their life, they don't fear it. And Paul says, avoid these people. Avoid them. Warn them, but avoid them. Be careful. Hebrews says, your life should be free from the love of money. Be satisfied with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you believe that? Or do you have money problems or have problems in your life and you immediately go, oh, see, God doesn't love me. He's forsaken me because I've got problems. What? Do you remember the book of Job that we read about last week? Like literally Satan shows up and is like, hey, I want to test Job because I think he'll just, and God's like, yeah, you take him. I don't think Job's going to do it. You run him through the ringer and he's still going to praise me. And I'm going to write about and tell his story for all of human history. I wish some of us really embraced that. It's okay for me to sit with boils and scrape them and be miserable because I know that somehow God is going to use this to change his people. He goes on, he says, therefore... May we boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Take all you want. I'm not going to live in fear. How are we going to do? <gasps> Stop. Now, if you put yourself in that position, you may have to dig yourself out of it, but 
goes on in Ecclesiastes, there is a sickening tragedy I've seen under the sun, wealth kept by its owner to his heart. He says, you chase all this wealth, why? So you can keep it? That wealth was lost in a bad venture, so then the father, when he fathered a son, he was empty-handed. As he came from his mother's womb, so he would go again, naked as he came. He will take nothing for his efforts that he can, can carry in his hands. This, too, is a sickening tragedy. Exactly as he comes, so he will go. What does the one gain who struggles for the win? What is more, he eats in darkness all of his days with much sorrow, sickness, and anger. This father gave his sons no spiritual heritage. See that? He's like, I'm going to build a wealth heritage. I'm going, to, I'm going to keep all this stuff, and I'm going to have a son, and I'm going to give it to him. And then all of a sudden, it was all taken. And he's like, what have I been building? And he has nothing to offer his son because he wasn't building a spiritual heritage. By the way, Solomon did this with his kids. If you read the rest of the story and the kingdom split that happens and the evilness of his son who doesn't follow Christ but turns his back on God, it's awful. Because Solomon realized that he had done this and he realized that he was sitting in darkness. Do you realize that the people that we love to chase, the people that we see all their wealth and all the stuff that they have, most of them die sorrowful, sick, angry, and alone. How many more celebrities have got to kill themselves? How many more wealthy people have to, like we have to see their misery before we realize, yeah, probably not the way I want to go. Like how many more? Like don't chase these things. Just live a simple, surrendered, in all of God, obey him life. And he will open up the rest for you, whatever that rest is. He promises that. Third John says, dear friends, I pray that you may prosper in every way and be in good health physically, just as you are spiritually. John's like, I pray that for you, but it's not under my control. Like, I can't, I can't make it happen. And then he says, for I was very glad when some brothers came and testified that you were rich and had lots of money to give me. When they came and testified that you've been working out, you've lost some weight, and you are buff. I was so excited when I saw the pictures of you on Facebook. No, I was so happy just to hear that you've been faithful to the truth, even though you're not well, even though you're not wealthy, even though you have nothing. Why? I have no greater joy in my heart than this, to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they're strangers. Like, thank you. Like there's nothing that does, listen, there's nothing that does my heart better as a pastor than to see you guys walking in the truth, to see you caring for people, sharing your faith, just doing simple spiritual things. There's nothing that brings me more joy, and there's nothing that panics me more when I see you chasing the other things. There's nothing in me that's like, oh no, oh, how am I going to warn them? They're not going to like what I have to say. They're going to get really upset with me, because they think they're doing really well, and I'm going to challenge them, and it's going to be painful, and it's just, I... I found the one. He's the one. She's the one. I'm like, uh, she's not. He's not. Let's talk about this. You just don't want me to be happy. I'm a little concerned about where you're finding your happiness. Goes on, he says, in third John, second John, he goes and says, grace and mercy and peace with all of us. Be with us from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father in truth and in love. I was very glad to find some of your children walking in the truth and keeping with the command we have received from the Father. So now I urge you, dear lady, do, or not as if it were 
if I were writing you a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning of creation, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commands. This is the command you've heard from the beginning. You must walk in love. Many deceivers have gone out into the world. They do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. If you truly love people, you will tell people about the truth of what's coming. You'll tell people about the truth of who the one that came, Jesus, and you'll tell them that he's coming again, and if they're not ready, they're going to spend eternity in hell. That is the most loving thing you can tell another human being. There's nothing more loving than warning someone when they're getting ready to go off a cliff. There's nothing more loving than to pull a little kid out of a street who's playing in the middle of the street and a car's coming. There's nothing more loving than to save a drowning person. Our problem is we don't have joy in our heart over salvation. We don't have joy in our heart over the things of God. So that's why we don't think of that as rescue. We think of it as, well, I don't want to bother them. I don't want to annoy them. I don't want to offend them. Would you think that with a kid playing in the street and a car's coming? Be like, well, he looks like he's having a good time. I wouldn't want to offend him. I mean, where's his parents? I mean, I don't, if I grabbed him, then his parents might be mad at me. And then, please, oh, that's unfortunate. Let's go get lunch. Like, that's what we do, right? John's like, no, 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 no. I'm just excited to hear you're walking with the Lord. He goes on. Matthew says, this is why I tell you, don't worry about your life. So don't worry what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. For the idolaters seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, seek his awe and seek his commands. And all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. You're going to get in so much trouble today, don't worry about tomorrow. <laughs> like You're going to have so many problems today, don't worry about tomorrow. Because you've got to be ready for the problems today. And you're going to have so much joy today that God considers you worthy to experience problems that you don't need to ask for more problems tomorrow. <laughs> he goes on and he says, as we wrap up, Ecclesiastes, he says, here is what I have seen to be good. It is appropriate to eat, drink, and experience good in all the labor one does under the sun during the few days of his life God has given him because that is his reward. That's what Jesus just said, right? Don't worry. God knows you need these things. Then he says, God has also given riches and wealth to every man. Underline that in your Bible. You have riches and wealth. You live in a country where the poorest in our country are still in the top 20% of wealth in the world. They are. Because they can go to the hospital and get health care immediately and they have to treat them. In other countries, you show up and you don't have money in your hand, they put you on the street. No one pays for the health care for them. They just die in the street. You know how expensive health care is? Yeah. We pay for that. So, so you have wealth that's given to you that you don't even realize, that you take advantage of, that you don't... How about clean water? Do you know how many people get sick and die of cholera and dirty water around the world? Millions. We don't have that problem here. Very few people have that problem. He goes on and he says, look at this. This is a gift. Um, he has given it to every man and he has allowed him to enjoy them. Take this, his reward, and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. For he does not often consider the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the joy of his heart. Again, I will say, what occupies the joy of your heart? 
Because God says he wants himself to occupy the joy of your heart. And if you do that, all the other things will be put in order. So where's the joy of your heart? Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we also have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, look around. These are all witnesses. If you know Jesus, you can witness that you know Jesus. This is a cloud right here. Your life is a vapor. We're just clouds, right? Okay. Then we have the larger clouds of people. He's talking about all the people in the Old Testament. He's just written about in chapter 11. He says, look, there's a great cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Remember, Jeremiah, your heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. It's And... And he says, let us run with endurance that race that lies before us. He's not talking about actually physically running. He's talking about pursuing the reality of eternity in our hearts. He says, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith. Quit looking around at everything you want. Keep your eyes on the joy of your heart. And look what he says. Look, who for the joy that lay before him, endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and lose your heart. Guys, Solomon is struggling in his heart. He's looking around, he's saying, I'm trying to figure this all out and I've done it all wrong. That may be you this morning. You know what God says? Thank you for figuring it out. Now, would you like to write a new story? Oh, you would, Solomon. Okay, let's write 12 chapters <laughs> for people to read. Would you like God to write a new story with your life? Draw near. Not because you can, but because you trust Christ. If you have not trusted Christ, if you've not surrendered to him, God says surrender. If you've done it and you've wandered away, God says like a prodigal son, you can start walking back and the second he sees you, he's going to run for you and he's going to grab you and you're going to fall and you're going to grovel and you're going to say, I'm nothing, I'm worthless and he's going to pick you up and he's going to say, my son or daughter has returned, let's throw a party. That's our God. But he will not tolerate and Solomon realizes, he writes Ecclesiastes, he will not tolerate a heart that refuses and stands in pride and opposition to his awe and glory and his commands. It's one thing to struggle with his commands and to struggle with having all for him. It's another thing to stand in pride. And if you are standing in pride, I beg you before it's too late, surrender and allow God's joy to fill your heart. And whatever you're going through, trust me, God knows, he loves you, and he wants to give you joy. Not a joy that's all you can see and everybody's smiling and happy. No, a deep abiding sense of everything's fine. I've got eternity, I have him. And even though everything's falling apart around me, I got it. I've got his grace and his mercy. And he wants to give us people around us who will remind us and walk with us through that. And I can promise you, this church does that. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you that you took the wisest man ever, Solomon, and you, you had him write this book 
so that regardless of whether we're very passionate people or we're very wise and calculated people, in the end, we realize that we are desperate if we don't have you. And Lord, I thank you that Solomon repented, that he realized these things. He realized that it was about just being in all of you. And Lord, help us not to find our worth in all the things of this earth and what we do, but to find our worth in who you are. And Lord, help us to lead people to that worth. And thank you for your mercy and grace we desperately need. Lord, I pray for those that are sick and I pray for those that are hurting, just like John did. Lord, we pray that you would make us well, but we also proclaim the promise that we will be made well forever in you. And that's the joy we cling to regardless of what we go through here because you looked at the cross and the joy that was set before you to endure the thing that you knew for all of eternity was coming. Why? Because you saw that it was going to save Peter and John. James and your mother and Mary you saw what your death was going to do to pay the price that we deserve so that we could have the mercy and grace that only you as a gift can give and so Lord if anyone here has not surrendered to you I pray today would be the day they take seriously giving their heart fully to you and Lord for those of us who know you I pray today would be the day we start really practicing joy, that we start preparing our hearts for the things that you love so that the dopamine hit that we get from doing what you want is so much better than the hits we get from doing what you say not to do. I pray all this in your name.